Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. Now, this is part two of the two-part series for the pizza delivery bank job. If you haven't already done so, please listen to part one, which was episode 73, where we break down the crime that occurred and the people involved before we break down the investigation in this episode. Before we do that, let's get to the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Also, as I mentioned last episode, the website has links to several different podcast listening apps, either via desktop or some of them are both desktop and mobile, that when Stitcher goes away at the end of August here. Sirius XM is shutting down its its Stitcher podcast app and I think like 50% of my downloads occur via Stitcher. So if you're one of those people that listens on Stitcher and you're looking for an alternative way to listen, hop onto my website, check out those different links for uh, the ways you can grab this podcast and several others to listen to. Uh, I think there's about 10 or so different links on there that, that will still be active when after Stitcher gets shut down. Now, if you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. After CrimeCon, I'll be sending out True Blue Crime merch to anyone who has ever donated via Patreon and or PayPal, so feel free to donate now for your on-air mention and some future merch. For no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Now, in part one of this series, we covered the complicated crime that is referred to as the pizza delivery bank robber or the collar bomb robbery. We learned that Brian Wells robbed a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania in 2003, and then while he was negotiating with police, the bomb strapped to uh, his neck via the collar went off and he was killed instantly. Investigators were searching for suspects, and all they had to work with was the notes they found in Brian's car that told him the steps he needed to take to remove the bomb. Now, after finding the McDonald's instructions in Brian's car, they attempted to follow the instructions and arrived at the place, but nothing was there. It appears the suspects had removed the next clue to prevent investigators from finding more parts of the scavenger hunt. And this is important because really in any scavenger hunt or kind of a clue thing like this all you have to do is remove one clue and the chances that somebody's going to stumble on the other clues are pretty limited and and in all honesty i don't know that we'll ever know how many clues there were it could have been that this next one was had the the last clue in it or whatever it might be but even if there was another clue after this one once you remove that there's no way for that person to find the next clue along the line you just have to break that chain once and and people aren't gonna be able to find it so police drive there realize there's nothing there suspects have already removed it or maybe there's nothing there ever in the first place but a few days later they're gonna find out there likely was something there on September 5th, an eyewitness watching the news called investigators saying that he witnessed a car going the wrong way on the highway just after the bank robbery and saw a woman get out and go into the woods near a traffic signal warning sign along the exit ramp. 
The area the witness described seeing the woman was the same area the note from the McDonald's had directed Brian to go. Investigators now knew someone had for sure removed the next clue before investigators could find it. On September 8th, 11 days after the robbery, a search was conducted at the home of some black males that were associated with a black female friend of Brian. No charges resulted from the search, but investigators were still operating on the information provided by Brian at the time of his arrest, just before he was killed by the bomb, when he stated it was three black men that strapped the bomb to him at gunpoint. So clearly after Brian dies, they're going to do a search of Brian's apartment. They're obviously looking for uh, any connections. They're going to search his phone, uh, his uh, again, everything in his apartment to see if he had written down anything that would indicate who these co-conspirators are on this, this case. And they're actually going to come across a couple names. Jessica, the, the sex worker girlfriend, is going to be one of the names that they come across. And then it said that they, there was another name they came across, and it didn't mention who that was or what the correlation was, but it's possible that this was this black female who lived with a black male. So, of course, investigators going off of his information saying, well, if he was accosted by three black men and this bomb collar was put on him maybe they are you know the relationships to this black female that, that he knows and they're hoping doing a search of of her place would result in some evidence from the bomb uh, plot being discovered but they found nothing there on September 13th William Rothstein remember that's the ex-fiance and the potential bomb maker uh, dumps over a thousand pounds of debris from his home at a landfill. And this debris is likely related to the bomb making, but no sources that I could find ever say if this debris is located or linked in any way. So this was mentioned in a couple different sources that investigators found this out after the fact. Now most landfills or dumps, especially by the time investigators are going to figure this out, it's going to be A, almost impossible to find the items that were dumped in the landfill because they're going to get either sorted and brought to different parts of the of the landfill or they're just going to get dumped in a location but once they're mixed in with everything else there's going to be very few ways unless something is marked or identified as belonging to a william that you're ever going to be able to convince a court or a jury that the evidence that you found came directly from William's place. Like I said, it's going to be mixed in with everybody else's trash and all the other stuff in the landfill. So once it's in there, it's going to be very difficult for you to link it back directly to a specific suspect. But then a week later, on September 20th, 2003, William called investigators to report the body of James Roden in his freezer. Now, James Roden was Marge's boyfriend in 2003 and she'd wanted William to dispose of the body by putting the frozen corpse into an ice grinder and while William thought he could go through with it at the last minute he decided he couldn't and instead called the police and this William is a really intelligent guy at least when it comes to like mechanical stuff and and whatnot and he spoke like three languages you know he, he was some people considered him a genius and sometimes these people think they're smart enough that they could actually call the police about a body being in their freezer and he could avoid charges and that he wasn't going to give up any information that linked the crime to the pizza bombing. And we do have to remember that William 
had avoided charges once before by getting immunity. So I, he's probably thinking, I didn't actually shoot James. All I did was agree to store his body. And then if I don't go through with actually grinding up the body and I turn it over to police, I'm sure he had something in his mind about doing some type of an, another immunity plea deal where he would testify against Marge and not end up with any prison time. And it'd be a way for him to get out from underneath this this other crime that he had committed. And what was shocking to investigators is as soon as they arrive at William's house, they realize it is right next to this radio tower where Brian had delivered the pizzas prior to the robbery. So now investigators are basically, as they're standing in William's driveway, they're looking at this radio tower site that they had searched and investigated the previous month as a part of this this bomb plot and there's they're starting to realize we got a dead guy in a freezer we got a, a guy who's very mechanically inclined and there's a good chance that this is all related to to the robbery investigators obtained a search warrant searched the rest of william's house and found that he was a hoarder as I mentioned, he's a six foot six giant of a man that was incredibly mechanically gifted and could fix just about anything. He spoke three languages and was very courteous towards law enforcement. However, there was no direct evidence linking William to the bombing, and he actually even passed a lie detector test. Um, and, and again, a lie detector test is just a machine, and this guy was really good with machines. Now, not that he was manipulating physically manipulating the machine by touching it or changing or anything like that but we've talked about in the past these lie detector machines can be beat if you know what you're doing so the results of them are not always accurate one way or the other they're they're a guide for police to to use if they need to apply more pressure during an investigation but if they put somebody on the lie detector test and the person passes, it actually kind of hurts their investigation if if in this case, as we're going to find out, this guy's involved but is able to pass the test. But they are starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, when they talk with William about the body, he's going to tell them that Marge was the one that asked him to, to store the body. She actually would be the one to kill James and request William to help clean it up and store the body. So now they're going to go talk to Marge. Now they don't have anything with the bomb plot at this point, but they do have this dead body and this new homicide investigation to look at. And Marge suffered from bipolar disorder, but she was still incredibly intelligent. Police soon learned that she lacked social skills and was very quick to anger. When she was told she was under investigation for the murder of her boyfriend and the death of Brian Wells, she actually told one of the investigators that he didn't seem too bright, so she probably wouldn't be convicted. And William had told investigators that he got rid of the shotgun Marge used to kill James, and he also told them where in the house the crime occurred. So investigators got a search warrant for Marge's house. After donning hazmat suits, the investigators entered Marge's house. It was covered in garbage and dog feces, and they did their best to get evidence, but thankfully they wouldn't need much. This is because William had agreed to testify against Marge for the killing of James in exchange for immunity from prosecution for his role in helping clean up the scene, dispose of the weapon, and store the body. So as we said, this is where William had already was a couple steps ahead. He knew 
if he went through with getting rid of James's body and every somebody ever came back somehow and linked him to this crime he probably wasn't going to be able to get immunity at that point but if he came forward and was cooperative from the very beginning and was willing to set marge up for this killing there's a chance that he could escape without any charges which is what he was looking to do just like in 1977 we had done the same thing for somebody else and so with this marge was charged on september 24th 2003 with the fatal shooting of james roden after she was charged, she was placed into a correctional facility, but in mid-March of 2004, she was moved to a secure mental health facility and investigators were told that she was off limits for questioning while she is treated for her mental illness. Their case would go into a major stall and then took a severe blow when William died of leukemia in July of 2004. He took any involvement in the pizza bombing to his grave, denying his role in the crime to his lawyer on his deathbed. Now, Marge decided it was her best interest to plead guilty to murder uh, of James Roden with suffering mental illness. And so, if you remember in the John DuPont case, uh, we covered an episode we called Foxcatcher. Both of these cases are occurring in Pennsylvania. They have that third-degree murder charge where you're, you're admitting to committing the murder, but you're doing it under some form of mental illness. And so, it's a much less punitive charge because you're not admitting to any intent you're just basically saying your mental illness made you kill him it's not guilty by reason of insanity it's you're admitting doing the murder you're admitting to knowing right from wrong but you're influenced by your mental illness when you do it and a lot of people are going to question why she's why she took this route but i think it'll be explained when we get a little further in into this case Marge was sentenced to 20 years in prison on January 7, 2005, and while investigators hoped the process would shake out some evidence in the Brian Wells case, no further evidence against Marge or William was found. And I think that's why Marge agreed to plead guilty to this, this murder of James Roden, because we're going to find out why eventually she killed James. But if she's willing to plead, at this point, investigators don't know why she did it, so if she's willing to plead to it and just say that it was her mental illness that did it they don't really have grounds to push much further there's not going to be any further investigation into the murder the the why the the how the anything like that she's going to plead to it admit to doing it state's going to get their case solved and and off the books but it's going to leave investigators in the brian wells case still in the stalled pattern because William's now dead, their prime suspect in the bomb making. Marge is put away in prison for uh, killing James Roden, but they have no evidence on her being involved in the bomb plot, but they strongly believe these people are involved, so they, they, they just need to get the tip of the iceberg somehow in this case going against this group. They just, at this point, don't have any traction. On March 16, 2005, Marge was moved out of the secure mental health facility and back to normal prison and was fair game for investigators to interview. So investigators waited a few months and on May 26, they paid her a visit during which she requested transfer from her current prison to a different one in exchange for information about the pizza bombing. They couldn't accommodate her request, so she refused to talk. So it actually sounds like you know Marge came out of this mental health facility portion of this prison got moved back into general population 
after a few months there, she wasn't liking it. She comes up with this idea that, hey, if she can give investigators some information on the Brian Wells case, they can give her maybe a transfer to a different prison, one that she's feels would better accommodate her, whatever it might be. And the investigators probably wanted to go through with this, but there's other factors in play here that they don't have control over. And when they tell her, sorry, we can't do that for you, she's going to stop talking. But this is going to further the investigation. It's going to push them to think that, A, she's willing to talk. So it's a possibility that she is talking to people about pizza bombing. And B, it's going to confirm for them that she does have involvement. Because how would she have information about the Brian Wells case unless she has involvement? So they know they're not barking up the wrong tree here. They're, They're definitely... The investigation is moving forward very slowly, but they're making a little bit of progress. And then a week later on June 3rd, they met with an inmate at Marge's prison who told them that Marge had confessed to her that she killed James because he knew too much about the bank robbery bomb plot and he had threatened to tell law enforcement. The inmate named another person, Floyd Stockton, who had been living with William and might have more information. Marge also told this inmate that William did in fact build the bomb and the motive for the crime was financial. So these jailhouse snitches, as they're called, whatever you want to call them, they operate on the idea that, just like Marge was trying to do, information is their currency. They can get reduced sentence time. They can get more, better accommodations, more quote-unquote rewards, or whatever it might be in prison if they cooperate with law enforcement, cooperate with the state. So some people take jailhouse snitch information with a grain of salt because it's basically hearsay evidence. You're using what somebody else supposedly told a person. Nobody's there to actually record this. Nobody's there to to have any proof that this conversation actually occurred. But it's one of those things where you're getting information And you just kind of have to go with it and hope that the information is accurate and it's going to push the investigation in the right direction. And this is going to make a lot more sense as to why Marge pled to the killing of James Roden. Because if there was an investigation and people started to look around a little closer and found out that Marge killed James because he knew too much about the bank robbery plot or he threatened to go to law enforcement, well, then that opens up everybody that the marge william all these other people to further investigation now for the bomb plot so again this is why i think marge pled to that lesser charge to just kind of try to sweep that under the rug and hopefully nobody would look any closer at james's death but as she's sitting in prison as she's bored and doesn't have anything else to do she's got these mental health issues She's bipolar, so she's got manic episodes where she's up for days at a time and is you know can't stop talking. She's eventually telling people in the prison too much, and it's getting to investigators. And one week later, they returned, and I assume they interviewed a different inmate. The affidavit that I read from the FBI blacks out the, inform- the inmates' names, but just based on how it was written, to me it seemed like it was a different inmate, almost like they were going back 
in an attempt to make sure their information was solid, they want to get it from a, a second source that she may have confessed to. And so this inmate also told investigators that Marge had confessed to her involvement in the Brian Wells case, and Marge told this individual that Brian and William knew each other, and Brian was involved in the plot but was not aware of all the specifics, and that William had actually measured Brian's neck for the device. This inmate also said that Marge told her that William made the device. So now investigators are getting a bunch more information. Between these two inmates, they learned that James was killed because he knew too much about the bomb plot and threatened to tell law enforcement. They found out about this Floyd Stockton character who'd been living with William. Uh, the fact that there was a potential that William had a financial motivation for building the bomb. Uh, that Brian had some information prior to the bombing uh, that he was involved in the plot somehow and it and if it's true that William had measured Brian's neck for the device it's pretty damning evidence that Brian was a willing participant at least to, at least to some degree uh, of course again Brian's family will claim he had no knowledge and the first time he found out about this bomb plot is uh, the day he delivers the pizza and is forced to wear this bomb collar but it just depends if you're willing to believe the word of these inmates and eventually the people involved in this bomb plot that say Brian was aware or whether you're, you know, you're Brian's family and you're dismissing them because they're a bunch of criminals and they're all lying at one point or another in this story. So why couldn't they be lying about Brian's involvement? So again, I'm not picking sides in that battle, but I just keep bringing it up because I think it's only fair for both law enforcement and for Brian's family for everybody to hear both sides. The following week on June 17th, another witness was interviewed that told investigators he used to cut William's grass, but one month prior to the bomb incident, William told him not to come around anymore and that his friend Floyd Stockton would cut the grass. This was one month after William had asked the man to get him two wind-up kitchen timers. The man also told investigators he stopped by Williams on the evening of the bombing and told William and Floyd that the streets in Erie around the bank were closed, and then he observed William and Floyd panicking and stating they had to lie low. William told the man that he knew Brian and that Brian had probably been killed so he couldn't be a witness. And so again, now you've got the two inmates and you've got this friend of Williams that's giving you a bunch of information. The pictures, you know, it started very, very blurry. That's how sometimes I describe his investigations. You've got this, it's, it's one of two ways. You have to look at it as a jigsaw puzzle. And as you put the pieces in, you find a piece here, a piece there, that picture starts to appear. Or you can look at it as it's a really blurry picture, but as time goes by, parts of the picture start to become more clear and so that's what's happening as they're going through this. They're getting a, a better, more clear picture of the players involved, how they all are intertwined in this, in this plot. They know now why James was killed. They know about this, this William and Floyd character now. Um, they know about potentially Brian having some involvement in this. So again, the, the picture's getting more and more clear each time they talk to somebody. So they're going to return to interview Marge on July 5th of 2005, and Marge is going to have her attorney present. And this is when Marge is going to admit to investigators for the first time that James was killed due to his knowledge of the collar bomb plot and his threat to take the information to law enforcement. 
Marge revealed that William participated in the plot because the house he was living in was under threat of forced sale because it had been his mother's house and was going to be sold in order to settle her estate. William needed money to prevent the sale of the house, so he designed the bomb and masterminded the robbery plan. Marge admitted to being in the area of the robbery as part of the plan, but her and her attorney attempted to use the interview to shift all blame for the bomb, the robbery, and murder onto the now deceased William. So, mentioned very early on, I think, or it was last episode, the last part of this series, that Marge is an intelligent person. She has used different people throughout her life to gain advantages uh, one way or the other. And so, after William dies, she sees him as the perfect scapegoat to throw under the bus so that she can kind of step back and say, well, yes, I knew about the plot, but she actually blames William for the murder that she pled to. Uh, she blames William for the bomb, the entire plot. Basically, she's just going to say, I was there, but I didn't do anything. And so, but because she's talking now, law enforcement, they're going to believe certain aspects of what she says, but they're obviously going to not believe other aspects, but that picture is getting more and more clear. An investigator would track down Floyd Stockton, and he cooperated with the investigation. On July 19, 2005, he told investigators he overheard Marge and William talking about the bomb plot, and the motive for both of them was financial. He also overheard William and Marge talking about killing James Roden, and the reason he was killed was his knowledge of the bomb plot. Floyd stated William told them to leave the day after the bombing because William was going to be in a lot of trouble and he didn't want Floyd to be involved. The next day, which is July 20th, 2005, Floyd, who was in custody on an unrelated sexual assault charge, called his girlfriend from prison, and on the recorded call, he told his girlfriend he had spoken with investigators about the case. He told her the killing of James was related to the bomb plot, and that William had confessed to him that he was involved in the bomb plot to include the incident at the tower site. And now investigators track down the witness that saw Marge drive the wrong way down the highway and stop and retrieve an item out of the woods in the exact area the clue for McDonald's had told Brian to go. They're able to track down this witness, and even a couple years later, he's able to positively ID Marge as the woman he saw that day. Investigators then track down Kenneth Barnes, who admitted to his friendship with Marge and James. Kenneth stated he did some work on Marge's house, and during that time, he twice saw Brian deliver pizza to Marge's house. Kenneth admitted hearing Marge say she needed to get James out of her life, and he saw her point a shotgun at James while he was sleeping in 2003. When it came to the killing of Marge's father, Kenny, Kenneth admitted he agreed to kill her father for $200,000, but said he had been joking. He did say he overheard Marge on several occasions say that she wanted to rob a PNC bank. And this all stems from investigators are going to eventually figure out that Marge's mother died in 2000. And when she her mother died, she was worth over $3 million between cash in the bank, her house, and her entire estate. And when her mother died, she left Marge like $250,000 and left the rest of it to Marge's father. So it was over $3 million that he had. And Marge was, between her greed and her fear that her father was going to spend all this money before he died, 
she wanted her father dead so that she could get her hands on on as much of that three million dollar estate as as she could and what she didn't know that was by the time the bomb plot came around which is how she was going to get her money to pay kenneth to kill her father i think the father was down to like maybe a few hundred thousand dollars left he had given away most of the money and so he didn't have much left and i think he'd even given marge an additional fifty thousand dollars at some point so between what her mother left her and the and what her father gave her she was almost three hundred thousand dollars that she got uh as a part of this inheritance but she had blown through that money and so now she was trying to get her hands on the rest of the estate and she was using everybody in her life like she always did to to try to make this happen and then as part of this plan kenneth was asked by marge if he knew anyone who could make a bomb investigators asked him if he could make a bomb and kenneth denied having the knowledge of how to make one but when the investigators asked him to tell them how he thinks he would make a bomb he described making a bomb pipe bomb just like the one that killed brian wells right down to the powder taken out of shotgun shells and poured into the metal pipes investigators returned to interview kenneth in late 2005 and he admitted he knew more about the bomb plot than he had originally told them he said that on the day before the robbery marge william floyd brian and him met at william's house they all discussed the robbery plan and at that point brian was told he would wear a fake bomb into the bank obtain the money and then walk out and hand the money to william he would then follow the clues and if or when he got caught he would not have the money and it would look like he was trying to follow his hostage takers demands and would be seen as a victim then when everything cooled down william would distribute the two hundred fifty thousand dollars among the participants kenneth admitted to getting picked up by marge on the day of the robbery he was picked up sometime before noon and marge and him drove to the parking lot of a barnes and noble bookstore near the bank he admitted he was along to ensure that he got the $100,000 he was promised as a down payment for killing Marge's father, but Kenneth told investigators he was just going to take the down payment and not follow through with the murder for hire. Kenneth said after watching the bank for a bit, they drove to the gas station. He pumped gas while William and Marge ordered the pizzas. They then drove to their spot to watch the robbery while William and possibly Floyd and Robert, Brian co-worker, met Brian at the tower. Kenneth said after the robbery was botched, they drove back to William's house where Marge got in an argument with William, and then Marge and Kenneth took William's car to the location of the clue, and Marge went into the woods and removed it. Kenneth then admitted to knowing Brian through Jessica, which was Brian's girlfriend. Investigators then went to interview Jessica. She stated on the day before the bombing, she had been with Brian and was in a car with him when Kenneth approached. She tried to introduce the two, but Kenneth said he already knew Brian. Jessica later asked Brian how he knew Kenneth, but he didn't answer her. After investigators searched Kenneth's place for bomb-making materials, they went back to Marge on May 10, 2005 for one last interview. Marge decided to cooperate, and she let investigators drive her around Erie as she pointed out spots where they had been the day that Brian Wells died, and these spots lined up with Kenneth's information. On July 9, 2007, a grand jury that had been convened in 2005 and was about to expire indicted Kenneth Barnes and Marge Deal Armstrong on armed bank robbery, conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, and using a destructive device in a crime of violence. Brian Wells and William Rothstein were unindicted co-conspirators due to them no longer being alive. Family members of Brian Wells became extremely upset at the announcement of Brian being listed as a co-conspirator. 
Two days later, the grand jury indictment was unsealed, and to many people's surprise, Floyd Stockton was not indicted, but this was because he was granted immunity to testify against Marge and Kenneth for their roles in the crime. A year later, on July 29, 2008, Marge is ruled incompetent to stand trial and is ordered to undergo mental health treatment and evaluation. On September 3, 2008, Kenneth pled guilty to the crimes of conspiracy to commit bank robbery and using a destructive device during a crime. Three months later, he was sentenced to 45 years in federal prison, and as a part of the plea agreement, he agreed to testify against Marge. In September of 2009, Marge was found competent to stay in trial, and a trial was expected in late 2010. But in March of 2010, a cancerous tumor was removed from Marge and was found that she had breast cancer. She is given three to seven years to live before the disease is terminal. Prosecutors request to continue with the trial unless her health changes and she is given less time to live by the doctors, and a trial date of October 12, 2010 was set. Now, during the trial, Marge took the stand in her own defense, once again believing she was the smartest person in the room. The tactic backfired, and on November 1, 2010, Marge was convicted of all charges, and on February 28, 2011, she was sentenced to life in prison to be served after her sentence for killing James Roden. This was purely symbolic, as she was going to die in prison either way. She appealed the conviction several times and lost, and Marge died of breast cancer on April 4, 2017. In 2018, a Netflix documentary about the crime called Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist, aired. Around this time, Jessica Hupsik told the media that she had conspired to recruit Brian into the plot because she felt he was a pushover. She claimed she was offered cash and drugs for finding someone willing to do the heist and regretted her decision to involve Brian. Brian's family denies that he was a willing or knowledgeable participant. They feel the government drove the investigation to implicate him after they failed to help him outside the bank and feared that if he was proven to be an innocent victim, their failure to assist him meant an innocent person died. They point to the fact that the only evidence suggesting he was involved was the words of a bunch of liars and criminals who lied for almost a decade about their own involvement. And I didn't cover it. I don't believe in part one so and i know i didn't cover it in part two it's to this day again it you have to you have to go down one of two paths of belief here that's really the only two options one is that brian he may have known these people he obviously delivered pizza to them he may have known some aspects to what was going on but if you believe the family the day of the pizza delivery, he went to work like he normally did. He takes this pizza delivery call and he drives this tower. Now it is said that they believe the compliance to put on the bank uh, the bomb collar was used. Somebody had a gun. There actually was an ear witness that heard a gunshot that day in the area of the TV tower around the time the pizza delivery would have occurred. So it's very possible that whether you believe he this is the first that he knows he's going to be the victim of this bomb plot or whether he was a, a participant in the plot but he thought he was going to be wearing a fake device and basically just be a decoy whichever way family believes one law enforcement believes another pretty much everybody agrees that at this point when he shows up and realizes the bomb is real he doesn't want to play along anymore. He doesn't want to go along with this, but they threaten him with this gunshot. 
and I'm sure basically tell him, if you don't do this, we'll just shoot you and kill you here. And he likely knows that James Roden was killed because he was going to expose the bomb plot and he was against it. So at that point, his choice is to go along with the plot wearing this live device, which is what he, most people believe that he did. William Wines, the, the, this, you know, everybody's seen it, these kitchen egg timers. You, you spin the dial around and lands on 55 minutes and then just slowly counts down and that's what was on his bomb collar and so it's believed and again then you have to go to one or two beliefs after that and either he was supposed to give the money to william outside of the bank now basically when he left the bank he was supposed to walk to the parking lot william's car was there he was supposed to give the money to william william would then leave the area which would leave brian there then Brian stays in the area, and that's where it's believed that it was designed that he would get caught at that point. And then people also believe it was designed that he would get killed at that point so that he couldn't turn in the group. And the, the, the plan almost worked. It's just there's too many people involved, too many people willing to talk, uh, that eventually the, the whole thing got exposed. But minus the fact they didn't get the money they wanted from the bank they didn't actually get any money because william fled the area when he saw the person calling 911 uh, as brian was walking by them leaving the bank so william takes off without getting any money so now brian's stuck with the money and the only way that he knows to get potentially get this real live bomb off of them is to follow these instructions and hope that these people that he got into bed with for this bomb robbery plot were telling the truth that he could somehow disarm this because he actually told the police outside the bank that he heard a click like there was some type of a key that was removed from the collar at some point and so when william designed this collar it is possible there was some type of a way to defuse this i don't even know if just turning the timer back to 55 minutes would have bought him another 55 minutes of time i don't know i don't know if there was other things built into this bomb to prevent that from happening and i think only the fbi and atf who actually looked at this bomb could really tell to this day whether this bomb was ever designed to actually be diffused or taken off brian or if once the, once it was put on him he was dying either way um, but it said to this day it's just still a big debate of whether brian as a guy who happened to know these guys may have even known about the bank robbery heist but was never a willing participant of it and just got basically duped into uh, participating in it or whether he at least was willing to go along with it but thought the bomb would be a fake bomb and lost his life because it was convenient to use him as a scapegoat as a decoy and then silence him forever with with this bomb so and in 2011 a comedy movie called 30 minutes or less featured a storyline in which a pizza delivery driver is taken hostage and made to rob a bank while wearing an intricate bomb vest the bank heist is supposed to land the mastermind of the plot enough money to have his father killed via hitman before he can spend all of his inheritance and this really upset Brian's family, of course, because basically it was a comedy about how Brian was killed. And Sony Pictures would tell Brian's family that the cast and crew were not aware of the similarities to Brian's story and the writers of the movie were only vaguely familiar with it. And, I mean, you might as well just admit that you 
based this entire movie off of this story. I don't know that there's anything illegal about it, but to me, the the fact they're claiming that none of the cast or crew knew anything about Brian's story, this was a pretty widely spread story. Now, granted, the Netflix documentary wasn't out yet, but most people, if you mentioned the, the collar bomb or the pizza bomb uh, heist, they knew what you're talking about, and it wouldn't have taken long for somebody to search this up and say, the movie is basically a direct knock off of what happened during this deadly uh, pizza bombing heist right down to you know the mastermind trying to get enough money to hire a hitman to kill his father who was blowing through his inheritance. Like I said, it was, it was basically Brian's story just changing the names. It wasn't a collar, it was a vest, but everything else matched up, so... And then also in 2011, an American criminal in Australia broke into the home of an 18-year-old high school student and made her wear a collar bomb as part of an extortion attempt. The device had a note on it that said any attempt to alert law enforcement would trigger a quote-unquote Brian Wells event. The bomb turned out to be a fake, and the man was tracked down in Lexington, Kentucky, and extradited to Australia where he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 13 years and 6 months. And so this is something where he was actually in Australia. He broke into this home. It doesn't sound like he knew this girl or this family at all. I'm guessing it was kind of an upper class area of Sydney that he did this in. And although police would never come out and say it, it really only made sense that it would be some type of a hostage extortion type event. But uh, they caught him because he left Australia like two or three days after this went down. And like I said, then they tracked him down to Lexington, Kentucky, sent him back, and he was convicted. Um, but since 2011, I wasn't able to find any other reported copycat-style crimes. But that's it for the case of Brian Wells, the pizza delivery bank job. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon and PayPal at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you later. Goodbye.